Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, the theatrical production Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. There was no reason for her to be angry, because she knew who she was, and she knew where she had come from and how her mother had raised her. Cuban revolutionary and Florida hero Jose Marti. He also had an ongoing correspondence with some of the leaders, both in, in Key West and Tampa, because Marti, as a political organizer, understood that he had to win over these two communities, which were the most important. A look back at Florida's frog lake industry, that and much more ahead on Florida Frontiers. There are no other Everglades in the world. These are the opening words of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas' prophetic book, the Everglades River of Grass. An excerpt from Steve Heitzig's orchestral work Voice of the Everglades, a tribute to Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, is part of the theatrical production Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. The Florida Historical Society is presenting the production in conjunction with the Association to Preserve the Eatonville Community. A preview performance will be staged at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa Village, Friday, January 21st at 7 p.m. The premiere performances will be held in Eatonville Town Hall on Friday, January 28th at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. during the 22nd Annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. Accomplished actress and director Lady Gail Ryan has participated in other productions focusing on Florida history and culture, including Mosquitoes, Alligators, and Determination, and Letters from Brevard, Historic Voices for Change. She's a featured performer in Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. And the more that they find out about what has caused this, the more they feel like they belong to Florida. One of the things in um, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is that she remembered the light. Uh, it, it triggered in me a, a memory, the realization, because I've lived at several other places, where there isn't during all the year this wonderful white light. Um, and I've had friends to come here, and I'm not sure whether that isn't part of what draws them here. There's a tropical light. There's a tropical breath. There's a co- tropical feeling. But how did they go through all of this and come to where they are? Female Florida, historic women in their own words, includes dramatic depictions of business person Caroline P. Rossiter, writer Zora Neale Hurston, environmentalist Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, and educator Mary McLeod Bethune. Lady Gail Ryan. But women uh, have played an immense part in the history of America. I know a lot of times we get all tied up with women's rights. Not not so. I'm not tied up in that. What I am tied up in is women's contribution to where they live and to the children that they have and to the community they have. And both of these women that we're talking about here is that you owe to the community in which you're in 
In 1921, just months after women received the right to vote in the United States, Caroline P. Rossiter, at the age of 23, took over her father's Standard Oil Agency in Brevard County. She ran the business successfully for 62 years. Her former home is now the Rossiter House Museum in O'Galley. Lady Gail Ryan is portraying Carrie Rossiter in Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. She went up to the oil companies of all the things to go up to, for heaven's sake, um, was domineered by all men, and went in and said, I want, I want the rights to Florida that my father had, and she didn't take no for an answer. But then she showed, then she, showed she could do it. Um, but, and then she used her own wits to see how she could make a family of all these people. She made a family out of the people that worked for her. That's what I love about her. What I love about is Stoneman, uh, uh, that she never gave up. Uh, fortunately, both of these women were still going great guns when they were in the 80s plus, and I'm about to reach 82 myself. And to read that, that she finally found her passion. Fortunately, I found my passion just a little bit before 82. But, um, but I know that you do have it clearer and clearer how you can contribute to the world. And that to me is it's what you contribute. It's what these women have contributed that's the most important to me. I succeeded my father in this position who distributed standard oil products by a run boat up the Banana River in the area that we now call Cape Kennedy. My father would anchor in the river, and settlers would meet him in rowboats to exchange gasoline and kerosene and oil for fish, berries from the palmettos, and alligator hides. Now, I was kind of an experiment with the company. And after my father's death in 1921, I went up to the Standard Oil headquarters in Louisville, Kentucky, to ask the board of directors for control of my father's agency. I listened at the keyhole as the board discussion became rather heated and, and lengthy. Finally, one of the gentlemen on the board said, let the little lady have it. She won't last a year. As it turned out, he was correct. I've lasted 50 years. <laughs> Lady Gail Ryan is also playing environmental hero Marjorie Stoneman Douglas in Female Florida. A columnist at the Miami Herald, Douglas won worldwide recognition for her 1947 book, The Everglades, River of Grass. She spent the last decades of her life as an environmental activist. She went to a meeting down, and I know exactly where she was because I, I, I was taking some work down there. And she went in this meeting. They were going to, they weren't going to let buildings come on on the Everglades on the edge of it, which was help destroy it. And that means that they had all of their refuse would go in the water and go back in the Everglades. And she went to the meeting. She sat there very quietly and very quietly sat there. And then she, they asked her if she had something to say. And she said, yes, I'm going to listen to all of you, but I want you to know something. I have nothing else to do except sit here all night, so you better listen to me. And she folded her arms and waited till everybody had their holler. And then she said, it's not going to happen. You're not going to build it. When you get a little older, as I am, sometimes you know you're not going to give up. Younger people will have to go home or do something else or get anxious, but she would not give up her dream of the Everglades. And that, that comes with age when you've got it on your side and you're not, what do you got to live for? 
you know, you already had a gift of these years. And, and so to stand by and say, this is it. Dolores Purdy is portraying writer, folklorist, and anthropologist Zora Neale Hurston and educator Mary McLeod Bethune in Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. Purdy is a fourth-grade teacher at Gulfview Elementary in Rockledge and a drama instructor for children in the Weed and Seed program. Well, the Weed and Seed program is a program that works with the police, the PAL program, and it's for children in the neighborhood, families and children, to kind of give them something to do besides being on the street. They have midnight basketball, a girls' club. Um, the police partner up with the kids and do different activities, and I do drama with the children three days a week, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. This will not be Dolores Purdy's first time performing at the Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. N.Y. Nathiri and Thomas Wilson recreated Zora Neale Hurston's 1933 theatrical work, From Sun to Sun, A Day in the Life of a Railroad Camp, at several Zora festivals, most recently last year. Dolores Purdy performed in From Sun to Sun when it was first staged at the Zora Festival. I was given a flyer by my boss at Jolie Smith Center, Fred Howell, and it was about an audition. So I drove over to Orlando and auditioned, and I was selected to be granny in the play of um, Sun to Sun that was directed under Miss, Mrs. Van Dyke. And I did that two years straight, 90, I think it was 92, 93 but it was a great experience, great experience. Dolores Purdy was just in her 20s when she played the role of Granny in From Sun to Sun almost 20 years ago. I actually stuffed my mouth with tissue to give me that, you know, toothish kind of sound, yeah. <laughs> and I actually had to sing. So it was a job trying to sing with your mouth stuffed without it falling out or, you know. But it was interesting. It worked. Those original restagings of From Sun to Sun were directed by Elizabeth Van Dyke, who also toured the country in the one-woman show Zora Neale Hurston by Lawrence Holder. She was Miss Hurston. And when I finally did see an actual picture of, of Zora Neale Hurston compared to her, I'm like, wow. <laughs> she always walked around with that hat on, you know, and she carried herself in a certain way. You know, it's like, okay, that's who she actually is. Dolores Purdy's portrayal of Zora Neale Hurston is based on the 1928 essay, How It Feels to Be Colored Me. The writing describes Hurston's life as a child in Eatonville and how it helped to form her progressive views on race. Even some of the language when she says, when I set my hat at a certain angle and saunter down 7th Avenue, Harlem City, feeling as snooty as the lion in front of the 42nd Street Library. That was like, did they speak that way back then, really? And then when she says Peggy Hopkins Joyce, you know, on the boule mish, has nothing on me. And that's language kids use today. And I was like, did she really say that? <laughs> Some of Zora Neale Hurston's Harlem Renaissance contemporaries, including Langston Hughes, wanted her to be angrier about the plight of African Americans, but she refused. There was no reason for her to be angry because she knew who she was. And she knew where she had come from and how her mother had raised her with all the confidence and, and hope, and it's get up and do something. And if you do that, then the world is your, or, is your oyster, and she knew that. So nobody could touch her in her mind, and, and that's all that matters. Dolores Purdy is also playing Mary McLeod Bethune in Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words. Bethune was the 15th of 17 children in her family and the first to be born free.
She became a trusted advisor to several U.S. presidents and founded what is now Bethune-Cookman University. It was strictly her determination. And, and I, I, again, her mother, Azora's mother, had all the faith in the world. That's where the seed, you know, was planted. And in, it was the idea that this little girl insulted her and telling her to put a book down, you can't read that. And that was the thing that sparked her to say, I'm going to master this one day. As to where most people would just give up and say, they said, I can't read. She took that and just made it her own, you know, and I was like, wow, sometimes that's, that's all you need. That's that fork in the road where some people will give up and agree or give in, and some people will just say, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. Bethune-Cookman University has played an important role in Florida history as one of the state's only predominantly African-American colleges. Dolores Purdy. To know that this lady began this college with a dollar and fifty cent and five students, you know, I, I'm feeling that kind of stress now with the, the drama group I have. I have five kids, and I'm like some days wondering, why do I come here for five kids? And then it's like her. It's kind of like because they come. You will show up if they show up. And if that's all we have are five, then we're going to work with these five. And that's pretty much, I guess, that's what's keeping me going. <laughs> A preview performance of Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words, will be staged at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa Village, Friday, January 21st at 7 p.m. The premiere performances will be held in Eatonville Town Hall on Friday, January 28th at 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. during the 22nd annual Zora Neale Hurston Festival of the Arts and Humanities. This is a recording of Zora Neale Hurston singing a work song she collected in 1933 near Lakeland, Florida. The cam got a pistol, he tried to play bad, but I'm gonna take it if it make me mad, shove it over. Hey, hey, oh, can't you lie now? I a like a like a like a like a like a can't you move it? Hey, 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 oh, can't you try? This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books about Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. While you're there, click on the Join Now button to get our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter, the Society Report. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This Moment in Florida History features historian Michael Gannon. Students of the 1513 voyage of Juan Ponce de Leon, or Ponce de Leon, who sailed to and named the peninsula of Florida, have long wondered where exactly on the Atlantic shoreline he landed. The great maritime historian Samuel Eliot Morrison once stated that we would never have a reasonably precise answer until a qualified nautical historian resailed the route in a comparable vessel at the same time of year. That was done in the spring of 1990 by longtime ocean yachtsman Douglas T. Peck. His research vessel reacted to ocean currents in the same way as 16th century Spanish caravels. In it, Peck followed Juan Ponce's compass readings and log entries 
And where did he end up? At Melbourne Beach. In 2013, we shall celebrate the 500th anniversary of Juan Ponce's voyage. University of Florida historian Michael Gannon. This Moment in Florida History was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. It's not that easy being green Having to spend each day the color of the leaves When I think it could be nicer Being red or yellow or gold Or something much more colorful like that Kermit the Frog would have found it even more difficult being green during the height of Florida's frog leg industry of the early and mid-20th century. Janie Gould has green. more. Once upon a time, there was a frog leg packing house in Sebastian. The frogs were caught in bogs and marshes in Felsmere and then packed in Sebastian for shipment to suppliers. Indian River County native I.J. Anderson remembers how frog gigging worked. Alice Vickers, whose parents owned a fish camp and fish market in Vero, worked at the Frog Lake plant when she was a teenager. She says it was owned by a Mr. Crippen and a Mr. Baisden. I worked as a secretary. I had shorthand in school, but I want you to know when I got the job, I thought it was going to take shorthand and write letters. Well, it turns out the people that delivered the seafood would come by US-1 in trucks. They would have their name on the outside of the truck, and we heard a truck coming. Baisden would run to the window, Crippen one get the name of the vehicle, the town and everything, and then we would write them a letter and say, since you come by US-1 and you're so handy, would you buy our frog legs? I never did have to take shorthand. I just had to run to the window. So that was marketing. Did you get into the hands-on part of the business with frog legs? No, I'd had enough of that with my father and mother to clean the fish. I didn't do that at all. I guess you saw a lot of them. Where did they come from? Where were they brought in from? I guess Felsmere. Back of Felsmere. They had boats regularly equipped with airboats, gigs, getting frog right along with the alligators. I guess there were millions of frogs out there at that time. <laughs> I wouldn't say million, because they'd have to catch them and get them at night with that headlight. The boats were rather small, used to bring frog legs in quite often. Why did you have to get them at night? Use your light, shine them, get your eyeballs, then you gig them. How do you do that? You got a gig on a sharp stick, get them and put them down in the boat, and that was it. In other words, stick them in the leg or something and bring them in? Wherever, wherever you could hit them. <laughs> Did you like to eat frog legs? I love them. Alice Crawford Vickers and I.J. Anderson reside at the Florida Baptist Retirement Center in Vero Beach. The Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services lists only two frog leg exporters in the state. One is in Sanford, the other in Hollywood. The agency also lists nearly two dozen wholesalers, including the New England Fish Market in Jensen Beach. The Marsh Landing Restaurant in Felsmere has frog legs as a daily menu offering. Felsmere's Frog Leg Festival attracts thousands of people each year. Over the past few years, it drew controversy from animal rights activists and environmentalists who were opposed to large-scale frog gigging. Now, though, the festival imports its frog legs from overseas. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. I am green, and it'll do fine. 
It's beautiful. And I think it's what I want to be. This is Florida Frontiers. Late in the 19th century, Cuban poet, journalist, and revolutionary Jose Marti traveled through Florida seeking support for a cause few Americans today know anything about the struggles of his countrymen to gain independence from a repressive colonial regime. Today, statues of Marti are found throughout the Western world, from New York's Central Park to Rome, Havana, Tampa, and Spain. Bill Dudley explores the importance of this man and his relevance to our present-day world. He's someone that we should get to know. We don't really know him. He is part of our history. In an interview a year before his death in 1995, Florida-born writer Jose Iglesias spoke about another Jose, a writer, a social thinker, a traveler, and a fighter who had died in battle a century before, a man named Jose Marti. You can come upon Marti from almost any angle. You can come upon him as a poet, as a great journalist, a really extraordinary journalist. You can come upon him in many ways. They will all lead you to revolution. Born in Havana in 1853, Marti became an outspoken revolutionary idealist at an early age, writing about the unsuccessful struggles of mid-19th century Cubans for independence from Spain. While still a student, he had been expelled from his native country for criticizing the government. Exiled to Spain, he had earned two university degrees, then traveled through North, Central, and South America, finally settling in New York City. In his writing, Marti emerged as a formidable voice for a Cuba free from what he considered brutal and oppressive Spanish rule, while creating, in addition to propaganda on behalf of the separatist movement, a vast body of letters, articles, novels, plays, and poetry. It's very difficult to translate his poetry. Probably the poems of his that are best known in the United States, most people are unaware of it. It's Guantanamera, the words to Guantanamera, are the opening verses of versos sencillos. Yo soy un hombre sincero donde crece la palma. And Pete Seeger made it very famous here and was picked up by everyone. Those those words, exquisite lyrics, are Mantis. Oh, sing it out. thing that Marti did was write letters, and he wrote letters virtually every day to all kinds of people in different places of the world. But he also had a, an ongoing correspondence with some of the leaders both in, in Key West and Tampa because Marti, as a political organizer, understood that he had to win over these two communities, which were the most important. Gerald Poyo is professor of history and international relations at St. Mary's University. In Marti's time, most Cubans in Florida lived either in Key West or Tampa's Ybor City, where they worked in cigar factories. In Tampa, the community was very much a, a working-class community, and the leaders were working-class labor activists. Marti, in the late 1880s, had expressed a great deal of sympathy for the concerns of workers. So for me, that explains why it is that Tampa is the first community in Florida to invite Marti, because he is expressing the concerns of many of the working class leaders. When Marti comes to Florida, he comes invited, not by the traditional political leaders, 
but by the working class leaders. And once he arrives then, he's able to win the workers over to his point of view, and slowly then uh, he's able to attract the nationalist leaders as well. Jose Marti was 38 years old when he arrived in Tampa November 25, 1891, having been invited to Florida by the Progressive Society of Cuban Emigres that made up the cigar-producing community of Ybor City. In Florida, he hoped to raise support and collect funds for a coming military action for Cuban independence. The day after his arrival, November 26th, Marti gave the first of several speeches, which united and stirred Cuban groups around Florida to action. Luis Perez, Jr. is professor of history at the University of North Carolina. He organized the Cuban Revolutionary Party. And it brought together people from all walks of life, cigar workers to cigar manufacturers, the rich and the poor, men and women, black and white, around this very sacred cause of Cuban independence, it's something that had never been done before. And so what Mardi serves to do at one and the same time is provide a social content, an ideological dimension to the struggle of Cuban independence. He provides a vision of what free Cuba is to be. He provides the incentive, the summons, the bring together just scores of people, just thousands of people who otherwise would not have responded to the call of independence. Up to that time, all the different revolutionary groups that wanted independence for Cuba were all separated. In 2000, at an event celebrating the Cuban social clubs of Tampa, Judge and Marti scholar E.J. Salcinas spoke about Marti and Florida. A stone's throw from here is where Jose Marti delivered two of his most famous speeches. They were so inspiring. They were so commanding. He was able, because of his eloquence, to bring the different groups together for one cause, the cause of Cuban independence. Through our research, we've been able to document from that last week of November until the last part of 1894, Marti came to Tampa no less than 20 times, meeting with different people, bringing the divergent groups closer together. Growing up in Tampa, Jose Iglesias remembers hearing about Marti from his grandfather, who had been part of that 1890s welcoming committee. In my family, all the questions of Cuban independence, of Marti's role, of what he stood for, were matters for discussions. They're very passionate about him, Cubans, and you know he is very well known in the Spanish-speaking world. In the history of symbolism and modernism in literature, he's quite well known in other countries as well. But all through Latin America, the literature on him is absolutely enormous. Spanish-language writers have written about him, and we have in the United States quite a few Martí scholars. Who was José Martí over a hundred years ago and who is Marti now? Is he relevant today as he was then? I would tell you, as relevant today as he was then. Wherever we turn, we find that Jose Marti's influence is very present. Just four years after his first visit to Tampa, Jose Marti was dead, killed in one of the first battles of the War of Cuban Independence, or as it would become known three years later, the Spanish-American War. He was 42 years old. The array of literary works Marti left behind is staggering, yet for most of his life he remained true to one social ideal. Today, Jose Marti remains a national hero to Cubans around the world, and in Florida, 
Cubans at both ends of the political spectrum. In a broader sense, for Cuban history, I think Martí offers a vision of a republic that, that hasn't been seen yet. And I think you have the curious situation that you have Cubans in Cuba and the emigrant communities, despite all of their difference, despite all the conflicts, they somehow they can both find inspiration in Martí, which shows the complexity of Martí and the broadness of his, of his writings. But Martí had a vision of a Cuba that, in my view, uh, was not realized during the period of the Republic from you know, 1899 to 1959. And I think it hasn't been realized since 59 either. And I think the Cubans are still looking for the Republic that Martí had uh, talked about and had hoped for. And in that sense, studying Martí, this whole process of continuing to study Martí is important. And I think that the more we study Martí, we can see the complexity, we can see the sophistication of his view of what Cuba could be and the sort of the polarization that we've seen between Cuba and the emigrant communities, I think is artificial. I think that both sides have a, have a sense of Martí that at some point should be able to come together. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Bill Dudley. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle.